Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Kingdom Driven Family Podcast with your host, Andrea Schwartz. This podcast will equip and empower you to help advance Christ's kingdom through God's primary institution, the family. Building a home that serves Christ and His kingdom. Andrea Schwartz, and what you're about to hear is an interview that was conducted almost four years ago. My guest is an attorney who focuses and is an expert on end-of-life issues, and there have been a number of cases in recent months demonstrating the fact that our culture does not value life. Just yesterday, Ireland voted to make abortion legal. So we have a country, what we consider a Western country, that asserted its right to murder children in the womb. End-of-life issues, whether it's in the womb or at the end of life with elderly or those disabled, are something that we should pay attention to. And I think Jerry's insights, although four years old, still hold up today. I hope you find this interview rewarding. My guest today is an attorney from Austin, Texas, Jerry Lynn Ward. And if you've ever read the Faith Roll of Life magazine, you might have caught some of her essays that Cal Seton has published over time. Jerry and I have known each other, well, mostly as Facebook and Skype friends. We've never actually met in person, but I still consider her a friend. I'll bring her on board and we'll talk about what I think you'll find interesting. Hi, Jerry. Hi. I mentioned that you were an attorney. Why don't you share a little bit about your background and what's your area of specialty? Well, my area of specialty is representing health professionals and businesses in cases that pertain to regulations, employment law, just everything that has to do with the government regulating them, whether that be regulation of their practices, licensing, regulation with regard to reimbursement, and also just the general things that businesses face with regard to contracts and employment law. Now, I also do some pro bono work in assisting families with situations that occur with patients in hospitals because I don't represent hospitals. And I've done some pro bono work in the family law courts with regard to child protective services. So how did you get involved in this? Was this always your ambition and you went to law school and you said, when I come out, this is the kind of work I'm going to do? Well, I decided I was going to become a lawyer when I was six years old because I think I had a highly developed sense of justice, and as probably most kids do. But that was always my dream to go to law school. But what I wanted to do when I went to law school was be a trial lawyer. And for the first 18 years of my practice, all I did was try cases. And now I still do some litigation, but I've expanded it more into the administrative law field and some of the business areas. So you like those lawyers on television? Well, they're interesting, but not quite realistic. (laughs) That's what a lot of people say, whether you're a doctor or whatever. Just for curiosity... I've always wondered if one of the things that isn't true is how swift justice is on television. Uh, Yes, it's like a trial happens within three days of the alleged crime, and that is just simply not realistic. 
Right. It's probably more like years in truth, right? Exactly. All right. So when we first got to know each other, I knew that uh, you had some personal involvement with somebody who had some disability, if I'm not mistaken, you had a relative, and also started sharing with me about the pro bono work, sort of representing families when their children or a loved one is in the hospital. Well, up until recently, I don't think most people would have thought there was even a need to represent a family when somebody went to the hospital. Why don't you share a little bit about that? Well, yes. Actually, this all started with what happened to Terry Schiavo because I watched that unfold and I was horrified because I have a profoundly retarded sister that, that people could have said some of the same ugly things they said about Terry Schiavo because she was cognitively disabled, calling her a vegetable, uh, saying that her quality of life was bad because she had these cognitive limitations. And the horror grew so great that I had to do something about it. So I called Texas Right to Life and they told me about a law that I was vaguely aware of, but was not really clear on how it was being applied. And there's a law here in Texas that allows hospitals to withdraw life-sustaining treatment against the will of the families and even the patient himself, even their advanced directive, if an ethics committee agrees with the doctor who wants to withdraw the care. And of course, the doctors who work in hospitals now are so highly regulated by the hospitals themselves and disciplined, and many, many of them are who work in ICUs or hospitalists. The only hospital they work for is that hospital, is one hospital, that ICU and that hospital. They don't work in other hospitals like they used to. They're essentially employed by the hospital, though it's mainly as a contractor through practices that are set up that contract only with one hospital. So it just became clear to me that there were other reasons for wanting to withdraw this care. And the reasons ran the gamut from the question of money all the way to a very strange worldview that many medical professionals are adopting. Am I correct? Did you call them hospitalists? Yes, those are doctors who just work in a particular hospital. Here in Texas, for the most part, physicians cannot be employees of hospitals with some exception, with some very few exceptions. So what the hospitals do is there'll, there'll be a practice of physicians that do work in the ICU and the hospital will, will contract with that practice and those doctors in that practice work only in that particular hospital system's ICU. I see. So you talked about sometimes these boards of ethics not only go against the family, but go against the uh, directives of the people. Now, I've recently had reason to be in a hospital, and they always want you to sign a, an advanced directive, and it's purported that it gives you greater rights and protection. Is that true? Well, if you look at the advanced directive forms that are given by the hospital, you will see they are very scant. And that's why I always recommend to people that they go look at, at Right to Life's Wills to Live because they are much more specific. They lay out more kinds of treatments that you can choose to have. So as far as I'm concerned, those hospital advanced directives are more fashioned in order to limit treatment rather than to actually give you a choice. Okay. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. If 
procedures are expensive and let's say people can't pay for it, what's wrong with limiting what people can do? If somebody is very, very ill and the prognosis is they're not going to live very long, shouldn't doctors be able to say this is my professional opinion on what's happening? Well, they that's sort of the position they take. However, the way that they frame the issue is not based on money because they know that would make people very angry. The way they base it is that it would be a, doing a disfavor to the patient to keep them alive because their quality of life is so bad. And most of the patients that I've represented, they had some form of payment, whether it be Medicaid, Medicare, or insurance. And a lot of time, yes, these doctors will treat right up until the, the insurance limitations start, and then they want to start withdrawing care. So that, that, is a, that is a very good question because we are running out of funds in, the, in our so-called social net to pay for these kinds of things. And Medicare is one of the biggest burdens on our budget that there is, and that's only going to, to grow. But the problem is that healthcare has become so expensive because of programs like Medicare and Medicaid and the employee-funded insurance. So people are in a trap because most middle or even upper middle class people will go bankrupt over health care costs, and it doesn't have to be like that. So our whole system is a problem. It's based on essentially a foundation of sand. So we are going to face questions like that quite often. And the problem is that because we have this foundation of sand, because it is based on payments from third parties, then what we see in my opinion, is a, uh, an erosion of medical ethics and this death culture and these death panels that exist today through ethics committees that are going to become more pre prevalent because of these choices that the government or private insurance, and which is now coming under the auspices of Obamacare, are, are going to make due to limited funds. You know, a lot of people probably don't understand, I know I didn't, why with programs like Medicare and such, costs go up, but because there are strict regulations of how much the government will reimburse hospitals or doctors, they inflate their price because they know they're only going to get a percentage so that they can get what they think they need in order to continue to do business. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. But the reason that healthcare costs are out of control is because you've got third parties paying for it, parties other than the consumer of healthcare, and that increases demand because people are not thinking through the choices that they're making with respect to the kind of healthcare they want and need. And a lot of the healthcare expenses are not necessarily going to the catastrophic issues like when you have an injury and you're in the hospital and that sort of thing. But at the lower end where people are running to the hospital or running to the doctor for colds, you know, things that, that we treated when I was a kid with a hot toddy and some lemon. Right, right. So should people be concerned about going into the hospital because they are not necessarily going to have their wishes adhered to or even family members to make decisions? 
it makes it sound scary enough to have to go to the hospital, but if you have to be concerned with whether or not care will be withheld from you. It is very scary because once they start deciding that they're going to withdraw care for whatever reason and the family members start objecting or even asking questions, very often the family members are treated horribly. They're sometimes barred from the hospital or attempts are made to bar them from the hospital. They'll call security on them. I recently had a woman call me where it was not a situation where they were trying to withdraw care, but she was trying to move her mother to a a different hospital because she didn't like the quality of care. And the hospital that her mother was at was using every means they could to try to bar this woman from making decisions for her mother, even though she had the power of attorney. So the hospitals have incredible power over the patient and over the family members, and they wield that power very mercilessly. When patient families go to these ethics committees where they're deciding the fate of their parents, the stories I hear about that are that these ethics committee members are extremely rude to them, condescending, and and brutal to them. Very often, if you have a situation where, there, say it's a it's a an adult child, and the mother's making decisions, they'll go look for a estranged family member, like an estranged ex-husband who's the father of the patient and try to bring that person in to make the decisions, even though that person has not been in the patient's life for years. I've seen that kind of situation, too. So, yes, going to the hospital can be a very scary thing once you start disagreeing with what with the care or the decisions that are being made by the doctors there. Okay, both you and I as Christians who believe that God's law pertains to all of life and that we don't make this artificial designation between, oh, that was Old Testament law and this is New Testament law. There is a fact that those of us who are in Christ have a lot to look forward to at the point at which we die. Do you think there's a tendency for people to say, no matter what the illness is, even if you know they have to go through all sorts of extreme measures to even keep the person alive, that it's a um, sort of a ironic thing that people aren't willing to say there is a time to die? Well, yes. And my whole basis or my whole goal in working on this is that I think that the families know better than the doctors. I don't want that decision to go to third-party people who don't know the family and who may have other motives for discontinuing care. But I think that every Christian family out there should think about what they want to do with respect to these kinds of treatments and have discussions with their their loved ones about that and have a plan in place, although you can't always plan ahead for every conceivable situation. I know that if I went into the hospital, at some point, I would probably want to stop treatments at a certain point. In fact, we just went through that with my father who passed away, who made a decision and decided that he was going to go to hospice, but no one was pressuring him, and he made the decision on his own. So, yes, I I am not saying that in every single case that care should be continued no matter what. 
and that's what I feel as well. There, there's a time to be born, and there's a time to die, and all the more reason to share with our loved ones whether you know we don't determine whether or not they're going to receive the gift of faith that the other side of life doesn't have to be so scary that no matter what we're going to do everything under the sun because that also gives this idea that if somebody is saying you know maybe you should consider hospice and you've just had experience with it that it's a way in which that when somebody is exiting life, it doesn't have to be traumatic. It can sort of be palliative and it can be, it can be pleasant, if you want to say death can be pleasant. Yes, but my whole point is that the way that our society has, has gone is that we have delegated too many decisions to the so-called experts. And what has happened is there's been a, a consolidation of power with those experts. And those experts don't necessarily have the same worldview as you and I or even the vast number of patients and their families out there. I do not want to see those consolidations of power where people are run over and and a worldview that's alien in a lot in a lot of respects to the Christian worldview prevailing. And that's why I fight these cases. How do you think, you know, Given, okay, Jerry, we're going to let you sort of lay out a plan here. What is a biblical approach to this? If if we could start looking at how we were going to reconstruct it on biblical grounds, what would it look like and how would it be different than what most people are used to today? Well, I think first we have to start with the premise that families should be responsible for their own members, family members. And we have to stop this idea of a third party being responsible for our, your health care. I don't have a problem with insurance. I don't have a, a problem with these sharing ministries that are not insurance, but where the members help defray costs. Insurance should be for catastrophic reasons and not for going to the doctor for a cold, for one thing. People should be saving and allocating their money to take care of their own health and then making other decisions about how to take care of catastrophic uh, decisions. The government should be totally out of health care, totally out of health care. If it weren't for the government being in health care, we wouldn't see the rise of these huge hospital systems that are that under Obamacare are going to have control over every facet of your health care, whether it starts with your primary physician, uh, the specialists uh, above that physician or anybody else. Because we are creating a leviathan of decision making in healthcare, so we need to get down to the the basic premise that we take care of our own health and we take care of the health of our family members, and we get these huge gravy train, you know, from government funding out of the picture, so that we can have a more de- decentralized healthcare system. You know, it's funny when you talk about subsidies and everything like that because they're pushed on you. I mean, whether it's college education and constantly, even if people can afford to pay the cost of the tuition, they're encouraged to take out loans. They're encouraged to take out student loans, which, you know, might take them decades to pay off. And even not too long ago, my daughter was in the hospital. They kept saying, well, if you can't pay, we can have you on this program. We can have you on this program. And we were like, no, we can pay. 
I, I think it's too much of a carrot to say, well, let's have somebody else pay. Well, and it's not it's not only that they're pushing them on you and trying to persuade you. I know of a case that happened years ago of a premature baby being born in a, a hospital in San Antonio. And at first the hospital was saying, well, if the baby's not born after a certain number of weeks, we're not going to take any measures to save the baby. And a lawyer went over there and prevailed upon them not to do that. And then once the baby was born, because the parents didn't have insurance, they actually threatened the parents with having CPS take that baby away if they didn't agree to put that baby on Medicaid. Wow. It seems backwards that, that all the That was not my case. That was a different lawyer's case. So... What do you think? I mean, you have a, a relative. Is your sister still alive? Yes. Okay. So obviously she can't take care of herself and that responsibility falls to you. If someone listening has a severely disabled child or relative, what's your recommendation on the godly way to address that situation, knowing that you're not going to live forever either? Right. Well, you know, I'm kind of with rush duty on this. We don't, we don't, right now, we don't have parallel services to help families take care of disabled patients. And rush duty talked about in one of his, one of the videos that I've seen that he's not saying right now totally dismantle the welfare system because we don't have anything to, to take its place and we cannot pull that rug out from under under people. So I think we need to start reconstructing from the bottom up and start figuring out ways that we can have these social programs to help each other because right now a family who has that situation is probably not going to be able to afford the kinds of, of things that that family member needs. So we've got to, we've got to put our thinking caps on and start at the beginning and start figuring out ways that we can help members of our community have those services. It's just like in, in Rome when the Christians started building their own hospitals. Now, we'll have other obstacles to go through because the state is not going to let us have things like that without state licensing. So that's another area that Christians need to re really work against is the idea that the state should have the authority to license any kind of healthcare provider or healthcare entity. We've lost so much as we have gone to the whole idea of specialization. Uh, my dad was a general practitioner and my mom was ill from the time I was in grade school and she was at home. Uh, instead of putting her in an institution, which other people had suggested that he do, he converted our living room into a hospital room. She had a hospital bed. And there was an awful lot I learned about feeding a patient who couldn't feed herself, how to change a patient who had soiled herself or had soiled the bed. And it's so foreign to people now that you, the, the thought is, well, I'd have to go get special training. This is something that families should just be teaching. We should know. And if there's a, a nurse within a church or something like that, she could do very well just teaching the average everyday person how you deal with a sick person in your home. Right. But when, when you're talking about a range of disabilities, one thing I know from uh, being around a lot of disabled people uh, or with uh, intellectual disabilities and also representing provider, private providers of care for those people, there are 
a lot of autistic and mentally retarded people who have behavioral problems that make it very difficult under our present system for families to take care of at home. And I'm talking about young men that get very big and very strong. And so we need to think about approaches to help those kinds of families because they, they cannot, unless they are a huge extended family and they, and you have the kind of families you used to have that where family members were taken care of like that, it's going to be very hard for a nuclear family out there to take care of those kinds of family members. And that's why Dr. Rush Juni, since we've mentioned him, talked about the trustee family, that the trustee family is much more than just the nuclear family and extended family. It's a network of relatives that pick up the slack for each other. And then by extension, we could be talking about the family of God, the body of Christ, that we should really be taking care of our own because that is what that's even as you pointed out how hospitals were started in the first place. The hospital isn't even a Christian idea. This was not something that was prevalent before the advent of Christianity. Yeah, right. Are there any resources, videos or things that you think would be of value to people in terms of getting further educated on this issue? Well, I think that the best place to go is the website for Texas Right to Life because the Texas chapter of Right to Life has been, I think, the most active on this the, this area of feudal care or so-called end-of-life uh, issues. Uh, somewhere on that website, you should be able to find the, the will to live. And also, there are a lot of news stories about what is going on because we have continually gone to the legislature the last few sessions trying to change the law so that it's not so one-sided. So they, they are very focused on this issue, and I think they are probably one of the best sources of information for that. Rita Marker, if you Google her name, she is the lady who has been fighting against euthanasia, and very often I believe that she will write on this particular issue as well, because really a lot of times when we're talking about this withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment, we're talking about a form of passive euthanasia. Isn't it interesting that a society that's more than willing to kill unborn children, it, it won't be too far down the road that now we're going to decide that the elderly or the infirmed are just as unwanted and we can dehumanize them as well. Francis Schaeffer warned about that. I believe it was in the book that he wrote with Coop. And yeah. he warned about this very thing that when abortions accepted, then that's going to translate to all vulnerable, needy people. So you recently went through a hospice situation. How was that? It was very good because I have always been a little bit suspicious uh, of hospice because of the experiences I've had in this feudal care. It was a very wonderful experience where they kept daddy very comfortable. They didn't withdraw all kinds of care. They tried to give him water, food. They didn't withdraw any of that. He, he wasn't too fed, but he didn't need to be. And they really uh, did a good job trying to control his pain. At first, he didn't want to take the pain medication because he thought he, I mean, he kind of, I don't know if he was joking, but he, I think he was concerned about becoming a drug addict. Or he may have been joking about that, but, you know, that generation is a little suspicious of drugs like that. And so they didn't push it on him. 
gradually he started accepting more and more and they were very gentle with him and good with him and uh, I was in there a lot and when we needed to reposition him they came immediately when we uh, buzzed them so it was a very good experience. I've just had some friends at church and they were a little uncertain because there came a point at which that the relative was no longer able to eat or drink and they thought possibly that the hospice was being cruel, not offering liquids, but the person couldn't drink. And so in the case of your dad, was it just sort of a, well, we could tell he's getting close to death and just try to make him as comfortable as possible? Well, he could drink through a straw, but there was a point where it was reached where he just didn't want to wake, he didn't want to wake up to do that. And I really do think that's where the church elders and members of the body of Christ can come over, anoint somebody, pray, and, and realize that, like I said earlier, there's a time to be born and then there is a time to die. And especially if you have the assurance that your loved one is going to have the next stop be heaven before the face of a Savior. I agree. Exactly. Jerry, is there a website you have that people might be able to check out if they want to find out more information about you? Well, my business website is www.garlowardward.com. And at that website, I have a lot of articles that are focused uh, towards health professionals and business. Uh, At this point in time, I don't have a a different kind of website. But you're on Facebook and people can find you. Right. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I think this is a subject that everybody needs to think about. And oftentimes, they don't want to think about it. But that doesn't mean it's a good idea not to. I agree. It needs to be thought about. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz and the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast. Holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society. Please visit thekingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com.